Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Giselin de Kuipers, and today I'm talking to Ashley Mears and Anne Monnier about gender bodies and elites. So welcome, Anne and Ashley. Can you briefly introduce yourself, Ashley? Yes. Hi. Hi, Gislinda. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I'm a sociologist at Boston University. I'm also in the Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies program. I'm an economic sociologist, a cultural sociologist, and pretty much everything I do has some kind of lens on gender as well. Yes, uh, thank you, Giselinda, for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. I'm Anne Monnier. I'm a research associate at ESSEC Business School in France, and I specialize on elite transnational philanthropy. Yes, thank you. Welcome to both of you. I'm very happy to have you here. So today we're talking about gender, bodies, and elites. So we talk with two sociologists who've done extensive ethnographic research on elites, respectively the global VIP party circuit and the philanthropic scene of the so-called American Friends of French cultural institutions. Both have highlighted the importance of gender in their work and with gender, so it seems, in comes the body. So today we ask, what can a gender lens contribute to our understanding of the workings of contemporary inequalities and particularly to our understanding of today's elites? And more specifically, what is the role of women as a dominated social category in this exclusive and dominant segment of society? So in these podcasts, we've had a lot of studies of inequality, but mostly it's either interview-based or it's survey-based. So the question I have for you, because you're both so clearly also ethnographers. So what does ethnography bring to the study of culture and inequality that other methods do worse or can't do so actually so you know the standard answer to this question gizalinda is always like it's depth not breadth and so you know surveys or even like a, a carefully designed comparative or larger scale interview based study can capture patterns right but what ethnography really does is kind of parses down to reveal the sort of felt logics through which people operate in their world. And I emphasize felt because that's one of the things that I especially attune to in my work is um, the kind of taken for granted assumptions about how the world works, the felt sense that something is appropriate or not appropriate, which is actually really central to how legitimacy works, right? Like a cultural system of domination works because people feel that it works correctly and that's how they go about reproducing and perpetuating it. Yes, I think ethnography brings a lot to understand the subtle mechanisms of how domination works. And also maybe I can cite Seamus Khan, who says that elite have really articulated discourses and that ethnography makes it possible um, to develop more subtle and more deconstructive aspects of uh, how elites work. Yeah, I would also like to add to that. So what ethnography really does differently from interviews and surveys is that it comes with a very different way of writing and thus also a very different way of reading. And I think because this podcast is made mostly for students, I think I think many uh, teachers like myself have found that giving people ethnographic material really makes for a sort of a very a much better way of engaging with students. So it's really a shame there is so little of this sort of ethnographic work. So that's also really why I'm happy to have you here. So what we discussed today, one large and one very small recent article by Anne 
And another article by Ashley that we discussed once before and a small article that summarizes her recent book. And then also a short article, another article by Luna Glucksberg on women and elites. And I want to know that, note that the article by Ashley actually comes up for the second time, which is interesting. So we already discussed it in the podcast with uh, Chauvin and Cousin. Uh, so it's really interesting to look at it again, but now with the gender angle and of course with the author herself uh, <laughs> discussing it. So, Anne, could you briefly introduce your own texts? Yes, of course. So the first text uh, was an article I published in the Socioeconomic Review in 2018, and it focuses on the role of social capital in elite philanthropy. And I show how social capital can be characterized not only by its quality, quantity and strength, but also by the spectrum, which is the ability to connect with people from different worlds, like omnivorism applied to social capital. And the second text is a text I publish in the conversation about women's philanthropy, where I show that women are completely invisible, yet very important in the philanthropic scene. And they work in the shadows and they could be a great opportunity for the philanthropic sector. Thank you. So Ashley, can you say something about your text and also Gluckberg's? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a little bit less put together than my colleague <laughs> Anne, but um, I will say about this poetics paper, uh, which which came out online in 2015 and then in print 2016. It, it's probably um, one of the favorite papers of mine, or the paper that I'm the most proud of, um, because it caught this discovery that I felt when I came into the field, I was doing research on uh, VIP bottle service nightclubs, mostly in New York, also the Hamptons, Miami, Saint-Tropez. And it was um, it was a setting that I was familiar with from my earlier field work in the fashion modeling industry, but I was very interested in uh, understanding the dynamics of conspicuous consumption that the nightclubs are uh, enabling and producing, primarily through the use of strategically recruiting and then stacking their arenas with um, young women that are beautiful, they refer to as girls. And uh, the thing that that kind of gripped me about this, uh, the finding that gripped me about this was that girls are really treated as a form of capital um, in like a currency. I mean, I mean, a capital and like a basic, like a resource. Um, there's so much work to, you know, recruit them, mobilize them, spend them. People make careers, men make careers out of spending girls as capital. So I theorized the piece, uh, or I theorized this problem as girl capital. And of course, in sociology, we have the proliferation and uh, ironically, accumulation of a lot of different types of capital, body capital I've written about before, you know, all kinds of different embodied cultural capitals. But um, what I wanted to show with this was that there's a certain uh, system in which men are able to appropriate girls as capital and can profit more from the circulation of girls' beauty um, more than the girls can themselves. And so that system of inequality is what I really wanted to get at. Um, so, and maybe also something on the Glucksberg? Right, right, right. Yeah, so uh, so Anne and I had recommended that Luna Glucksberg, first because there's not a lot of people that are doing um, studies of elite and gender, which is 
odd, right? Because the elite are like a prime case to theorize masculine domination. Like it's all men. Um, but also it's a great space to theorize of white supremacy. Like it's a lot of white men. Um, and so what Luna Glucksberg had done is she was looking at these alpha territories, elite suburbs in London. And she found that um, based on interviews and observations uh, that there's a, dis- a kind of, it's an update of Susan um, Ostrander's 1984 piece, Women in the Upper Classes, that women are just spending an enormous amount of effort replicating the social status of um, of their wealthy working husbands. And, and they have a kind of precarity involved in that because divorce can be catastrophic for them. Um, and they are, in a sense, willing to accept gender domination in exchange for uh, class privilege. They're kind of making that that bargain and, and accepting this dominated position as uh, as devoted wives and uh, child taking care of children. Before we move on to the substantive discussions, I always ask you, so looking at the readings together, including the recommended readings, so what surprised you most in the readings? So Anne, what struck you most? So I think what is interesting is um, I love when Luna Glucksberg uh, tells about how women contribute not only to their own um, domination, but also to reproduce uh, inequalities. So I think this is something important because they they're in charge of their the children's activities of their education, and so they participate into the reproduction of capital of capitals plural. <laughs> and I think this is the most surprising thing that um, dominant dominated as women uh, participate into this mechanism of reproduction. I think. Okay. Ashley. What surprised you most? Um, well, one thing that's kind of obvious, but still surprised me because I hadn't really thought about it, is that she just, Luna Glucksberg points out that when looking at um, elite, uh, economic elite men, that they, they are disproportionately married men, that marriage is actually an important part of, of being um, being in that position. And so marriage is kind of... Uh, the, the work of married people is, is you know, doing work uh, as well. That's, that, that's important for, for capital and the transfer of capital intergenerationally, of course. And the thing that just really surprised me is that, um, how little had changed. You know, since the 1980s, the women of the upper class um, piece that... Um, <laughs> like the stagnation of this finding and the consistency of of um, what Anne had just uh, uh, you know mentioned this reproduction of capital and the distinction between symbolic and material and the relegation of women in doing the symbolic work of furthering men's material capital it's like that just doesn't budge that's surprising. So to go back to the central question is what can a gender lens contribute to our understanding of the workings of contemporary inequalities and particularly our understanding of today's elites? So the first question I have for you is how did your interest in gender and elites emerge and more particularly, which came first? So was it first gender and then elites or first elites and then gender or something else? So Ashley. Um, First gender. So I got into sociology actually 
through an interest in embodiment and gender via Foucault and Judith Butler. And uh, that was, uh, you know, like this transformative um, gender studies class in undergrad, which kind of opened the door to thinking about sociology as, as something that I would want to do for the long term. Um, and then I, I came into grad school studying the fashion modeling industry, um, which of course, you know, gender is very central there. And then um, from that, yeah, I kind of ended up in this VIP club context still with an interest in embodiment, the value of bodies and the circulation of bodies, women's bodies in particular. Um, and the case was a, a setting of uh, elite leisure. And it was in a, a, a kind of important moment to study elites because the um, of course, as you know, as as we know, the wealth distribution is skewed so much. And when I started researching the VIP party scene, it was around 2010, and so that's in the recovery of the financial crisis. Um, but it was a very uneven recovery, as we know, that people who were already in a privileged position in the class hierarchy recovered much more quickly. And 2010 was a time of like global financial austerity for a lot of people. And it was also a time in which bankers were throwing million dollar birthday parties. And I was reading about it in newspapers, like how could somebody spend that much money on champagne? And so, um, yeah, that, that opened the way, um, or it opened a path into, um, bringing these conversations into the context of, uh, of elites. For you women first elites second or maybe even much later so Anne, how did this happen for you uh, for me it's the contrary so it was first elites i was working on culture arts and culture and i was interested in elite practices elite cultural practices and i was focusing on opera so i did an internship at the paris opera and then i i was uh, asked to go to the um, philanthropy section of the opera and that's why i, I began working on philanthropy um, and so I, I was really focused on elites. My advisor was specializing on elites and I went to Columbia University to work with Seamus Khan on elites. So I was really specializing in this. And um, I did my whole uh, field work without thinking about gender. <laughs> and I was just seeing that there were a lot of women in philanthropy, but I didn't really think and question the gender aspect until I had to write. And then I, I saw that there were many, many women and it was interesting. Um, and then at my defense, they asked me something about gender. So I really began to think more closely. Um, and then I had this conversation with Ashley. And that's how I, I, I thought it was a good idea to publish something on gender, but I haven't published much um, until the conversation uh, article. So it's really new for me and I'm not a gender specialist. <laughs> oh, so in your conversation article, you write about gender as invisible, right? Yes. So, but, it, but actually what you're saying was also invisible to, to you. Exactly, exactly. And also because, in, I don't know if it's the case in the US and France, uh, there are gender specialists, gen gender sociologists. Um, and sometimes other people who work on other, um, for example, on class or on race, they don't always integrate the gender. So I think, and we're going to talk about this later, about intersectionality, but I think it's very important. Yeah, so but looking back, before we move to the theoretical, so looking back, how, how did it happen for you that you were sort of, you know, 
working on this and not paying attention to gender. So looking back, are you surprised by that? How do you explain it didn't caught your attention until so late? Um, I think because I was not educated to do this, to ask the gender aspect, uh, to question it. And also because um, it was just normal for me to see so many women in the philanthropic scene. I was used to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember when I, I was reading uh, McCarthy. um work on women's philanthropy. She, she has uh, worked a lot on this topic, showing that um, philanthropy is a way for women to go on the public sphere when they couldn't do so and they couldn't really um, uh, be on the political arena. So uh, when I began reading, I was like, oh, why didn't I think of this? And I think not any, I mean, no, no one told me you should think about gender when I was doing my dissertation. It was really at the end. So this says something, I think, also. Yeah. So it also says something about the about the sociology, right? You're saying it tells us something mostly about yeah. sociology, but then also maybe about the way we look at yes, the world. Yes, exactly. And so I think uh, for granted, uh, yeah. scholarship on elites, um, there are not so many on women. So I think I was uh, uh, reading all the literature on elites, and I almost... I think I read maybe two or three articles on women, but it was mostly on, on men. So this is something also about sociology. So the so the question then is, and I think you've almost already answered some of this. So what happens when you take this gender lens to the study of elites? So apart from indeed revealing that men also may have a gender. So <laughs> what would you see when we wouldn't have noticed if we hadn't paid any attention to gender? Uh, but if we see, and I think that's what, what Anja said, if we... Uh, see gender, but don't really question or really see it. So what, what do we get from this angle? So Ashley? Yeah, so um, you get to see intersecting inequalities, even among the upper class, this uh, unequal power dynamic between women and men, which shows us, uh, you know, just one insight that the elite are not uniform, right? That there's variability and there's different positions and and struggles among them. Um, that point has been made before, of course, if you think about the elites generally in terms of their, you know, transnational nature, the um, old money versus new money or um, sources of income. Yeah, of course. Uh, but even within the same family, there's very different power dynamics because of, of gender and inequality and women being in a more precarious position relative uh, to men, not having the same kind of claim to uh material capital being more positioned as the forebearers and reproducers of symbolic capital. Um, it just, yeah, the, the, that's, that's an important uh, difference. It also shows difference among, um, among women um, and interests of women. And when I say that, I don't mean to generalize, uh, you know, elite women are singularly interested in the symbolic, but I, I do think that it's important to attend to the pleasures of um, the pleasures that people feel when they are in these privileged positions of uh, visibility and high status, whether they're in nightclubs or whether they're in you know the front stage of the philanthropy gala world. That um, even though this is not the same position of structural power that men have in the elite, there are certainly very powerful and compelling symbolic uh, rewards that women can pursue um, in those positions. And so that was also a kind of important thing in my work.
Yeah. So that's what you write in the other, the short paper, right? That it's also fun to be there. You want to put it in technical. You want to put it in technical I think it's, yes. I think it's, I think it's important to realize that it's so that people are, I mean, there is like definitely a reward and that enjoyment and appeal can also be an important reward in a way to drawing people in. I think that's a, yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, Anne, so what do you see? Yeah, I think gender lens? Yeah. what is interesting is the subtleties of domination mechanisms. And you can see that they're at women in elite uh, world are at the same time dominated and dominant. So uh, you can see the intra elite dynamics, the, the diversity of the elites. Um, and I think, as uh, Ashley said, the intersectionality. Um, so the, the fact that inequalities add up to each other. And I think if you're a woman, it's hard, but if, if you're a black woman, it's even harder. So this is something you really have to take into consideration. Um, and I think thinking about class and gender at the same time was very important for me. And maybe asking also the hierarchy of aspects, is class more important than gender? And I think for these women, it is the case because they, they accept to be dominated uh, to keep their class stat their status in terms of class. Um, so this is something I think very interesting to see. Yeah, I think so. So intersectionality is something that usually tends to be sort of very abstract and vague. But I think looking at in particularly both your studies, I think it really helps to see how two different dimensions of, of inequality really work in very different directions. So in terms of class, they're on top of the hierarchy. But then within this, they have they're part of this sort of dominated segment. And I think that creates very interesting tensions that are, you know, you can see also that in the end, they can't really be solved completely. So the women in both your studies, they seem to sort of indeed prioritize the, the class or the status or the elite aspect above the gender thing, even though gender, of course, brings really very specific, you know, perks, values, rewards. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, I mean, it's not just pure domination in the sort of, uh, it's a very specific form of, of being dominated, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, and we can also think about what happened in, in France uh, when there was the Me Too movement, because we had women uh, like Catherine Deneuve, who is a French actress, very well known. Um, she wrote a, a, um, an open letter with other actresses saying that um, it would be a shame that to transform the relationship between men and women. And they wanted to have the freedom to be like uh, to flirt in the street, to have men uh, making <laughs> comments to them. And it was part of flirting and of um, uh, the relationship between men and women. So and it was really a backlash for many feminists to see that some women were accepting this position of uh, being dominated. So um, it, it was very mediatic uh, episode in France, but I think it's really revealing. Mm -hmm. Ashley, you want to say something? Or yeah, yeah, just no. to say, no. you know, yeah. not only that they are in one framework accepting domination, but not understanding it as domination must be, you know, extremely <laughs> frustrating to the other side of that mm -hmm. argument. Um, but I, I had this too, even with. Um, you know, my dissertation, which became the book Pricing Beauty about the the fashion models, there's like a, a, a moment in there um, in which I'm trying to play a little with the, you know, showing the the pleasures of uh, of being in the spotlight on the catwalk behind the camera uh, and so on. And there 
I think um, somebody reviewed it for the New Left Review, Chloe Sharma, and, and was saying that, like, you know, but what about the domination? <laughs> like, this, you know, but that kind of argument, um, I think, it, having a having a, a sort of subtle ethnographic eye and and understanding how people are making sense of those trade offs and under which conditions and with which kinds of rewards those things are acceptable or those bargains are being struck is really important. So the third question uh, that I have for you has to do with elites uh, specifically, because elites, I think, is a very special sort of aspect of inequality. So what's specific about the inequality we see in elites, apart from the fact that they're obviously uh, very wealthy and also have a lot of social capital, as Anne shows. Um, so as we discussed also in the podcast with Cousin Chauvin, there really is quite a radical difference also with the upper middle classes that I think would be what most of the listeners of the podcast are most familiar with. So what is uh, what is special about elites and specifically if we look at the sort of the cultural and symbolic mechanisms that we talk about in this podcast, dif- what makes different elites different from other uh, rich people? Among the, among the elite, I mean, it really depends what, what, uh, bracket you're looking at because it, that's a long right tail and mm-hmm. um you know people people tend to feel um inadequate not comparing themselves to equals but comparing themselves to people above and so if someone's on like the you know 0.01 spectrum of uh of the wealth uh, system or the wealth hierarchy you know, they're probably not looking down, uh, they're looking up and like, it just keeps going up, right? Like Bill Gates and, and like Elon Musk and like the almost trillionaires. Um, I think that, um, that's a kind of interesting dynamic, um, that compels or propels, um, a, uh, a sense of, um, I don't want to say entitlement, but maybe a, a sense of justification because, I'm not like to put it in quotes. I'm not as rich as that person that's like further up. Um, so that's a kind of interesting uh, dynamic. Um, there's also, I think, um, uh, an importance of subtle distinctions and cues of of belonging. Um, and so I, I think that the farther up you go with material resources, there's a you know pretty pretty rich and nuanced vocabulary of uh, of distinction in the symbolic realm. Um, having having uh, uh, exceptional um, exceptional outcomes, e- exceptional accomplishments, exceptional children, um, as well as possessions, right? I think that, that probably proliferates in really interesting ways. Okay, so Anne? Yes, um, I think maybe one of the specificities is the subtleties of um, elite inequalities, because it's very informal, it's very subtle, and I think that's why ethnography is so important, because it's in every detail. I saw when I was doing my fieldwork how just where everyone sits is very important to them. Mm -hmm. Just the sitting and the position of everyone uh, in the hierarchy is very important. Um, so the subtlety of it, and you really have to focus and to know about elites to to see them when you're um, doing fieldwork. And the other thing maybe is also the power relations it creates. So it's a very competitive world where everyone is trying to be better than the other. 
Um, so also understanding the very uh, small hierarchies that are um, developing between between people and the, the competition it creates. So is there any point of contact between your uh, your two elites? <laughs> and so which one? <laughs> yes. Uh, so we we have an interesting point of contact, actually. So um, in the VIP world, I interviewed a lot of uh, wealthy men, particularly men who work in finance, um, who are going to these VIP parties for a range of different reasons. One, because it's fun and, you know, but also because they can... Um, Uh, they can do some business there and, and uh, you know, take out clients and so on, especially if they're in finance. But um, in talking with some of them, they would mention that if they really wanted to impress a woman, you know, they wouldn't take her to these clubs. They might take her to a gala uh, or like something in the philanthropy world. And so they're dipping their toes in this world as well, kind of as consumers um, of, uh, of these, these nice um, uh, kind of impressive events. That was, that was pretty interesting. So they will be in both places. So do they go to these galas, which are which are really, I, I assume, sort of stiff sit down things with uh, complicated clothing and uh, yes, very and formal rules. And then the next day they will be in these nightclubs with loud techno music or not like that. I think at the, at the galas, there are two different people. They are like uh, old money, like almost aristocracy, American aristocracy, if we can say that, but a very old money money with very um, a lot of social norms to respect. And there are a few uh, new money who would go to VIP parties, but many of my interviewees wouldn't go, I think, um, because they're very... Um, careful about going to the right places with the right people and not being tacky, not being being careful about how they spend their money um, and their relationship to money and also moralizing money so they want to uh, do good. So I think um, maybe it's also a question of new money and uh, old money. Mm-hmm. It is also a question of gender. So the women in uh, in Anne's uh, context in the gala scene are older women. I mean, these are like, you know, for the most part, women that are in their 40s, 50s, you know, ma- married even in their 60s and so on. Um, and in the VIP clubs, those women would simply not be allowed in. It's actually like remarkable, the age discrimination. Um, I mean, the, the door at the VIP club is open to uh, any man who has money, uh, any man who can pay for, you know, the upmarked uh, champagne bottles is welcome to come in. But but women are subject to all kinds of um, disparaging remarks, you know, subtle, subtle, sometimes, sometimes just outright insulting comments about their height, about their dress, about their bodies, about their age. Um, and so it might be that, you know, in a VIP club, it wouldn't be the norm, but it certainly wouldn't be weird to see like a 60-year-old old man, um, you know, spending money in these kinds of places, but it would be very unusual to see a 60-year-old woman. So potentially the point of contact is that that the men in both settings might be the same, but women definitely rot. So we'll return to the bodies in a bit, but I have find one final question about elites, which has to do with families. And I think that's really interesting, something that comes up also in the contrast, so that what undescribed, so they're mostly uh, couples, right? So, so elites tend to be organized uh, about families. 
Yes, definitely. I think it's a, a key aspect to understand elites. There is a lot of scholarship on how elites think about the past, how they have a lineage and everything, but also about the future, how they transfer capital. And the book that has been um, uh, published by uh, Céline Besser and Sibyl Golak in France is really a big one, uh, The Gender of Capital. And they talk about how um, women participate in the reproduction of capitals, but they don't, um, they don't have the, the benefits. So the, the inequality is huge because uh, it's like a double lose-lose thing for women. Um, so I think it's, it's very important. And I think also if you think in terms of philanthropy, it's very uh, important to keep in mind the role of families because philanthropy is mostly done uh, by families and there are a lot of family foundations. And if you think, for example, of um, the divorce between Bill and Melinda Gates, it was a huge thing because uh, the capital was going to split and the foundation uh, are, uh, was going to have a lot of consequences for them. So I think um, elites should be th uh, thought in terms of, of family. So now to the, the bodies. So this is the final sort of central question that I would like to discuss with you. So when we speak about women, as I said, all of us immediately, the bodies are everywhere. So all of a sudden, indeed, you have academic articles talking about manicure and things like that you don't usually see there. Can you, so why is this? So what happens with the, the gender and the body? I've been attuned to the role of the body and status and social interaction from my perspective as a woman with a body, like literally since I was 13 years old, I've been deflecting yes. unwanted uh, attention around how I look. Um, and, and so I bring that perspective with me, of course, when I, when I study any, any kind of realm, but it's not to say that it's always going to be the most important thing. And it's not a, it's not a finding that I focus on in all of my, in all of my work, but it was just so clearly prevalent here. Of course, it's a nightclub, so you would not expect it to not matter uh, in the same way that the interesting thing was, was the attention to people, to women's bodies in particular, the disproportionate attention to women's bodies across both of our settings, right? Like a VIP nightclub with a bunch of models in it. Okay, there's going to be some of that analysis. But in the philanthropy gala, when Anne and I started talking, we were like, wow, this is a really, really interesting commonality. Yeah. So Anne, so what about the bodies in the philanthropy galas? Because indeed, that's a little more unexpected. Yes. <laughs> so this is something I wouldn't have thought about if I hadn't talked to Ashley. So really good to have exchange about our uh, our studies and fieldwork. Um, I think what is interesting is that um, they have internalized the pa patriarchal structure. So um, they're really... I mean, the women, the, the representation of women in um, the, our heads, in our minds, was the reproductive uh, aspect of women. So it's a reification of women. Um, and that's why we talk so much about uh, women's body, I think. Um, and the, the role of the sociologist is also to deconstruct uh, the imaginaries, the representations, and to look at what's happening concretely in the fieldwork. Um, and what, what I saw is um, a lot of norms, unspoken rules of how women have to behave and how, to, how do they have to look like. 
um, and also uh, how they get comments from men and from other women, um, which was very interesting. And also my role as a as a woman, but also as a as a body. And I didn't expect that because um, I had done some research before on elites, and I hadn't any comment on my bodies. But but when I went uh, to these galas, I, I had some. Uh, very nice comments on my bodies, and it was very, very strange and um, and difficult to to deal with <laughs> when you're not used to it. So I think also sociologists uh, should think about this aspect in terms of reflexivity and uh, what it says about doing field work among uh, elites. So I think uh, I still was right that this is not something specific to doing research on among elites, right? On elites, it's a little bit different because I think we're used to get, um, dealing with our uh, relationship to our body in the usual settings. Uh, but for me, being among more more powerful people um, had, mm. I think, an impact on how I behaved and how I reacted and um, the control maybe they were trying to have on the way I looked. Um, which was not the case if I were doing research just on uh, people like me. Okay, so mm -hmm. can you say, so what do you mean by control? Can you? Um, so the, the, the way they were talking to me and making comments made me think and know what they were expecting of my body. Uh, mm -hmm. the way it should look, the way it should behave. And I guess if I had some doing some uh, what we call faux pas, like wrong move, um, they would have said something. So I think um, as, a, um, as an ethnographer in elite settings, it's even more difficult um, to norm and to behave in a way that is good and acceptable for uh, the people you're talking with. Okay, so then I get it. So, and this, of course, would be different in elite settings because you're you're faced with people that would be very comfortable with telling you you're doing things wrong. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the the forms of discipline and control are much stronger there because people would not be sort of evasive about it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, do we have an example of this? concrete so what happened um, no but I remember that one of my colleagues um, was sometimes doing I don't know be, um, talking loudly for example um, and they were telling her don't do that like you shouldn't do, be doing that so um, really being careful about how you behave for example they told her uh, she wasn't smiling enough um, she shouldn't talk so loudly so things like that and I think it's very specific yeah. to elite settings and the way you, you behave and the way your body is and, and moves. And so this is something very specific to elite settings. Yeah. So it touches also upon something else, which is that if you do research among elites, that as a researcher, you are definitely not the person who is in charge or you don't have as much status as the people. You, I think that's very different from... I think the vast majority of studies that you will do in with any sort of method, whereas researcher, you have a certain amount of status that would is likely to put you at least on level or maybe even higher than most of the people that you talk to. And I think in yeah, yes, mm -hmm. uh, exactly. Your settings probably not. Yeah. Yes, and I think it's also because um, I they really in terms of status, I had a diploma, I was doing a PhD, I was at Columbia University, so they really. Um, we're okay with that, but an, an admirative. But the thing is that um, I think the behavior, the elite behavior is more than just a diploma and a, a, a great brain. It's also about 
the body and the way you talk and the way you 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 move and the way you dress because i think as um as academics we are more like dominant 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 dominated also as women uh, and so we're used to uh, use our brains and to be able to articulate discourses but we're not used uh, um, to behave the way elites and these specific elites who are very high-end um, behave. So it was a lot of um, learning for me to, to behave in this particular setting. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Aisley, you want to add something? Well, um, I have a good example of, um, of, of being in this position much more explicitly because I, in the VIP clubs, I took on the role of girl, which obviously is you know, putting oneself in the position of dominated, you know, from professor to, to girl. Um, and there, there was a moment in my field work when I was in Miami with, uh, with promoters and they were talking about, uh, going with these clients who were some, you know, big business owners, uh, back to New York, um, early, uh, on a private plane, but there was, uh, there was not enough seats for, for everybody. Um, and so I needed to really look good when I went out that night so that I could secure a seat on the private plane to get back so I don't get left behind in, in Miami. And, uh, and the promoter had a very explicit way of, of letting me know that I wasn't doing it right because he was like, you need to wear the other high heels. <laughs> like I was wearing these wedge heels, which, you know, that's like cheating. And so I needed to wear the, the real high heel. Um, it, anyway, nobody got, nobody got on the plane. Um, uh -huh. the, the, nobody got taken on the plane. I, uh, everybody, everybody got left behind. It was just the clients. Were on the so, uh, so let's get back to the general question. So about the contribution of a gender lens to our understanding of the workings of contemporary inequalities. And I think you gave a number of great uh, bits of analysis and also examples to understand how gender really can help you see things that you don't really do. So the question I have before we move to the ending is so on the basis of your studies, and you're also now going to work together to analyze this further. So where do we go from here? So what sort of new things have we discovered? What sort of unrelated issues do we have that we can study in the field of gender uh, bodies and elites? One of the uh, cool things that we're doing as we put our two case studies together is we're thinking through um, Ilias, Norbert Ilias, on, um, on etiquette, uh, using his work on the civilizing process and the court society and the importance of, of etiquette, these small interactional mechanisms that people use to signal and make a social hierarchy and status hierarchies. And we're kind of bringing gender into that conversation. So, Anne, what about the where do we go from here question? Um, yes, maybe uh, remind everyone that uh, researchers have bodies and this should be taken into consideration um, because we always tend to think we are only brains. <laughs> so this is something important. Uh, maybe uh, basing on my own experience, um, I think it's important to talk about gender, not only by gender sociologists, but all sociologists should um, take this question and integrate it um, transversely because gender is everywhere. So um, always think about gender when you're doing research, even if it's some, on something completely different. <laughs> um, and then the last aspect would be uh, the importance of doing ethnography on women um, and critical ethnography be because I think that it's very subtle and we 
they have very constructed discourses and we really have to look at their practices and how they do symbolic uh, um, uh, symbolic things um, to make this uh, domination and how they relate to each other uh, concretely and individually. So I think ethnography is really key to understand the cultural and symbolic aspects. Final question I always ask is after this conversation, what is the thing that we, what will stay with you? So what can you let go this week after this conversation? Ashley, first. So yeah, it makes me think about this paper by Randall Collins in the 90s in which he he's describing women's class cultures and he says that women are to um, symbolic status as men are to class because men control the you know material capital and, and women do the front end work of, of uh, you know showing status um, and uh, and reproducing status systems. Um, and now I'm thinking like is ethnography, uh, or do ethnographers do the symbolic work for sociology? <laughs> yes, but but I think not without having serious claim to uh, the material gravitas of also moving the needle on social theory. So, yeah. So, uh, um, um, what will stay with you? I think what will stay uh, with me is the fact that women. Um, elite women, we should say, um, contribute to this, um, to their own domination, but also to inequalities. And I think one question that comes up now is if they contribute to the reproduction of inequalities, um, how can women be the solution? Maybe they can help uh, build something different in terms of power relations. Um, and I think elite women as being in the middle between domination and dominated, um, they can be part of the solution and uh, helping uh, reverse the, um, the inequality. So this is a question I ask. I don't know the answer, but uh, this might be interesting. It's a hopeful thought indeed. So what I can let go, I think, is really what's why gender is such a distinct form of inequality. So that's a rather abstract question, but I think it comes up time and again when you talk about gender. If you compare it to class and race, and I think one of the things that really makes it different is that all the other forms of inequality that we look at as sociologists tend to work with segregation. Mm -hmm. So different classes, different ethnic group, different racial groups, they can be sort of separate. But I think what's really interesting is that men and women always, you know, live together, even when there are these differences. And I think this also, I think this informs many of the insights you share, also about the way that, as in Ashley's paper, that, that women can become a resource, so a form of capital for men, that it can be exploited so easily, that families have this very specific structure, so that it's a form of, of inequality that, that does not come or is very difficult to, to come with segregation. And I think yeah. that really makes it a very distinct yeah. form of inequality. And that also makes for a lot of the sort of uncomfortable things that, we, that that come with it. Because, you know, this always, these are always people that are indeed sort of implicated in their own uh, domination in a much more intimate way than, than in the when we talk about class, which is, you know, what cultural sociologists like to talk about most, which in a way is safer. And it also feels more sort of, uh, awkward talking about this before because of this reason because there's always this sense so aren't these women implicated somehow in right, their own right. domination because it's so so close to their self and I think that also links with what Anne just said it also means that if there is 
if it has to be changed, it also probably should have, you know, it comes very close to to people's everyday lives and their very intimate and close relationships in a very different way. So I think that makes it interesting, but also more more difficult, indeed more subtle. And I think I really noticed that both of you used the word subtle several times. Uh, so I think this is what makes gender as a form of inequality uh, different or distinct from the other list of intersectional inequalities that we tend to discuss. So this was the Culture and Inequality podcast uh, with Aisley Mears and Anne Monnier talking about gender bodies and elites and sharing their uh, experience of doing ethnographic work uh, among elites and finding or uncovering the gender aspect of the workings of elites and also of elites as a specific form of inequality. So thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, uh, thank you again for talking about this. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you both.